This morning, I want to talk about contrast culture. Now, that may be a, an unfamiliar term for you, but the way I want to set this up is that contrast culture is where we're supposed to live in the midst of cancel culture. Um, a few years ago at a Super Bowl game, the cameras would focus obviously on the game for a while, and then there'd be these moments where they'd find a celebrity in the stands and they'd focus on them. And there was this one moment where um, the cameras found former President George W. Bush, and he was sitting right next to Ellen DeGeneres. And they are at pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum on their political beliefs and that sort of thing. But they were sitting there uh, just being cordial with one another. She said something to him. He laughed about it, and she laughed along with him. And just they were being kind and cordial. By the next morning, those on the left's heads were exploding. And they wanted to cancel Ellen DeGeneres for being kind to the former president of the United States. But it doesn't just stop there. I mean, some of you are fans of the Bachelor franchise, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. I don't, I don't watch it. I just have to be honest. I don't think marriage ought to be a game show. But if you like it, it's okay with me. But you, if you are a fan, you know that Chris Hansen, who is the longtime host of those shows, is not on this season of The Bachelor. And the reason is somebody dug up some old social media post that they found offensive and they rallied together the forces of social media and the forces of hysteria and they have effectively canceled him. But it doesn't just happen to people who are alive. I mean, Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel is dead and now Dr. Seuss is being canceled and you don't even have to be real. I mean, Mr. Potato Head is being canceled. Um, it's, it's kind of absurd and it moves toward that absurdity. Cancel culture is really an insidious thing because it stifles free speech and free thought. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you ought to be concerned about that because while you might be on the right side of cancel culture today, your beliefs might be the ones they decide to cancel tomorrow. Cancel culture, I found this definition, cancel culture is a form of harassment intended to single anyone out who sets one foot out of line from the prevailing woke narrative. You see, cancel culture demands that everyone fit in and no one stands out. That's what it demands. But here's what's interesting. As Christians, God wants you and he wants me. He wants our church to stand out from the world in which we live. We're called to be lights in the world. We are called to look different than the world, to speak differently than the world, to act differently than the world. The world has a system of values, and we are called to stand against those and in opposition to those and show a better way for living. And so the Apostle Paul speaks to the church at Philippi about not how they're a part of a cancel culture, but how they should be the contrast to the culture. That we should stand in stark contrast to the world around us. And he's going to show us three contrasts in this passage that all of us need to take a look at and see how we're doing individually and maybe as a church family in being in contrast to the world around us. Look at verse 12 and um, I'm going to read through the entire passage and then we'll, I'll point out these three contrasts to you. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work 
for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now I've talked about how that the repeating theme of this verse is that word, to rejoice or to be joyful. And Paul says he is joyful over the Philippian Christians when they don't blend in to their culture, but when they stand out from their culture. I think that the, the real thematic phrase of this passage is when he calls on them to, be, to appear as lights in the world. That that is what we are to, to look like. One translation says, I want you to appear as shining stars. Think about that against the pitch black darkness of night. Even the tiniest star shines, shines and, and stands out. And that's what God wants for you and for me. At your workplace, at your school, in your circle of influence. On the sidelines of the soccer field or the baseball field. God wants us to shine as lights in our world. In order to do that, he says, you're going to have to look different than the world. There's going to have to be a contrast from the world. Not a camouflage, but a contrast. And here's the first one. He says, first of all, I want you to contrast passive religion with a passionate pursuit. In verse 12, the apostle calls on us, to do something, and that is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work out your salvation. Now, that phrase has been widely debated. What exactly does that mean? As a matter of fact, I would say that in 2,000 years of Christianity, or almost 2,000 years, uh, that that phrase has caused some confusion sometimes. So let me give you two things that it doesn't mean, and I'm going to show you what it means. First, Paul did not say work for your salvation. Paul in no way is implying that their effort, that their work would somehow earn them salvation. Paul is not saying that you have to add moral goodness to grace. For we are saved by grace through faith and not through works, not of works. He doesn't say we want to add moral goodness to grace to save us, nor do you add religious ceremony. You don't add baptism. You don't add the Lord's Supper. You don't add church membership to salvation. Paul is not saying work for your salvation. That is a contradiction to what everything the New Testament teaches. We are saved by grace, not by works. He doesn't even say work on your salvation. Some of us uh, come at the Christian life with an attitude, well, I got to work on my salvation. I, I, I got to read my Bible and know God better. I, I got to pray and I've got to give and I need to fast and I need to share my faith and I need to go to church. And so I got to do those things to work on my salvation. 
That's not the phrase Paul uses. Now, please hear me. I am for every one of the things that I just mentioned. They are all important disciplines of the Christian life which would enhance our spiritual growth and our contrast from the culture, to be very honest with you. But Paul doesn't say work on your salvation. Paul says work out your salvation. And what, is, what he's doing here is a word play. Because you can't understand work out your salvation in fear and trembling if you don't look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, for it is, at, it is God who is at work where? Come on, come on. In you. That what God wants is for the power that he's already put in us to work its way out of us. Kenny Leverett is a world-class athlete. He was on a U.S. It did it. No, I scared to death. Um, he's a world-class athlete. He was on a U.S. Olympic team, weightlifting team, and now he does CrossFit competitions, and he's super fit. Well, he went to Muscle Beach, which, uh, if you know anything about it, it's an outdoor gym on the beach in California. And all these bodybuilders go there, and they, and they work out there. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger was discovered by a movie producer there. And, and um, all, all of these uh, big-time bodybuilders go there. And it's quite a spectacle to see. Well, Kenny Leverett decided that he would go there, but he'd go in disguise. He's right next door to Hollywood, and so he had a Hollywood makeup artist make him look like an old man. What, he, what Kenny said was, I had him make me look like an 84-year-old man. I don't know why he picked 84, but in the video that's on YouTube, he looks like an old man. And he kind of shuffles into the area there at Muscle Beach, and he pretends he can't even lift up a 45-pound plate. He kind of rolls it over to the bar and struggles and puts it on the bar. And these workout, these, these, these bodybuilder types are in there, and they're like, hey, hey, old man, don't, don't hurt yourself now. Come on, you, you can work out, but don't, don't hurt yourself. And then he gets under that bar, and he knocks out like 10 cleaning jerks, just boom, 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 boom. It's just amazing. And they're just stunned. I mean, here's this guy. He looks like an 84-year-old man, and he's lifting as much weight as they're lifting. He's doing it with dynamic motion. One guy eases up to him, and he goes, hey, uh, what kind of supplements do you take? Prune juice, lots of prune juice. Don't you know those bodybuilders all ran out and bought gallons of prune juice after that? But the funny thing about this video is that while he looked like an old man, what was underneath was a powerful, actually 40-year-old guy who has worked out, and that workout then manifests itself, and it came out in the workout. Here's what I'm telling you. Let Jesus, the Jesus, the power that is in you, work its way out of you. He says, I want you to work out your salvation. Now, that word, that expression, work out, does say to us this, that there is some effort involved. The gospel is not opposed to effort. The gospel is opposed to you thinking you can earn something with your effort. But it does take effort to live the Christian life. And Paul would say to us, don't be passive in your view of salvation. Don't be passive in your walk with Christ. You need to allow Jesus, the Jesus in you to work his way out in your life. Paul would call on us to be passionate, to renew our passion. One of the things that I believe leaves many of us passive is that we do not understand a central concept that I find over and over in the Bible. 
And when it comes to spiritual things, this is the truth. We are at war. If you come to understand that there is a spiritual warfare going on around you, that it's, and it's not against people, it's against demonic forces, it's against the powers of evil and Satan, if you understand that, you won't be passive. You'll be active. But far too many of us have forgotten the fact that we are in a spiritual battle day to day. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis revealed this wartime reality when he said, quote, enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage against the forces that are in power. That's what God calls on us to do. He calls on us to be passionate about our faith. Second, the second contrast is to contrast complaining with cooperation. Complaining with cooperation. Look down at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word to grumble, it means to murmur. To sort of under my breath to complain and to gripe about what's going on around me or my circumstances. The word that is translated disputing is a word that's really more contentious and, and overt than that. It means to, to push your own opinion and your own preferences, to try to make other people comply with your own personal desires. Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing. He didn't do, say do some things without that. He says, in, in everything, don't grumble and don't complain. I love what one writer said. Basically, if we translate this into the vernacular of our day, do all things without grumbling and complaining is simply this. Suck it up, buttercup. He's just saying, look, life is hard sometimes. Difficult circumstances arise. But God does not honor the complainer and the grumbler. I know that the squeaking wheel often gets the grease, but it doesn't get the grace. Because God stands against people who grumble and complain. There's something interesting about the book of Philippians that a lot of people notice. When you read through other writings of Paul, you'll notice a lot of times things in quotation marks that are direct quotes from the Old Testament. The book of Philippians doesn't have any of those, it seems. But many New Testament scholars believe this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. Because there were points when Moses was leading the children of Israel. Remember, they, they come out of slavery in Egypt, go through the Red Sea. But then they're, they're wandering around for 40 years because of their disobedience before they enter the promised land. And they grumbled and they complained. They grumbled about God. They disputed with Moses and his leadership. They were always doing those sort of things. And, and Moses uh, had to put up with them forever, for 40 years. But he talks, Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. I want you to notice how seriously God takes grumbling and complaining. Paul is writing about how the children of Israel responded to Moses. And he writes, Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now that's immorality. 
Let us not try the Lord as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. They put the Lord to the test. But look at this next one. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Paul puts grumbling and complaining on the same level with immorality. Paul says, don't be that kind of person. You know, there's a phenomenon, especially in social media these days, that I, I, really, I really almost didn't use this this morning, but it, it, it kind of fits perfectly because I know a lot of wonderful people who have this name. And it's just so misfortunate that in our society now that being Karen is an insult almost. It, it, it really is misfortunate. So if your name is Karen, I want you to know you're a wonderful, lovely person. This does not apply to you, but you know. I had one lady after the first service who came to me and she says, do you know, when I go to Starbucks, I have started giving them my first name, Karen, and my middle name so that I just am not just Karen at Starbucks because, you know, of the criticism. That whole thing started when a lady in a park called 911. And she called 911 because there was a family who had taken a bag of charcoal and put it in a grill and started a charcoal fire. And Karen thought that they shouldn't be grilling, uh, lighting a charcoal fire in the park. And so she called 911 to report them. And then she called, when nobody came, she called 911 again. And then she called 911 19 times. After which the police showed up to inform her that it was not illegal for them to have a charcoal grill, but it was illegal for someone to harass 911 operators 19 times. And now, unfortunately, in this society, to be a Karen is to be a complaining, entitled person who wants their way. Here's what Paul says. Karens, I love you. Please, don't be a Karen, okay? That's what he's telling us. Don't grumble. Don't dispute. Number three. The third contrast that Paul points out is this. Contrasting darkness and light. If you look down at verse 15, Paul says, I want you to work out your salvation. I want you to do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Paul says there is to be a contrast in what we believe, what we say, and how we act with a world that is totally at odds with God's word, with God's moral standard, a world that is in total rebellion against the truth of God. Here's the way Paul described it, that we are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, let me talk about that for just a moment. The word crooked is a pretty obvious word. I mean, you probably don't need the Greek for that. But it is in contrast to being morally straight. Like God's word says you shall not steal, right? Stealing's a bad thing. If you steal something, you know, what's interesting in our vernacular, we say you're crooked. You're a crook. That's where that came from. And so it is to 
defy God's word. The word perverse is a little different. The word perverse means to twist. In the language of the New Testament, what it would mean is to take something that is true and to twist it and claim that it is false. Or something that is sinful and to twist it and say that it is good. By the way, the word perverse, though not exclusively, but almost every one of its usages in the Bible, is about sexuality. The word perversity means to be sexually immoral. And so Paul says that they are living in a world that is crooked, that is in defiance of God's word, that's breaking God's moral code, and perverse. That is, that it is, it is twisting morality. When I was growing up, I had a preaching hero. Um, I loved to listen to this man preach, even as a teenager, before I surrendered to ministry. And in my 20s, he was truly my preaching hero, in my 20s and 30s. His name was Adrian Rogers, and he was a great pastor. I remember something that Dr. Rogers said has always stuck with me, and it applies here. So hear me out. There are three steps for any society or for any group of people when it comes to sin. And he called it a three-step digression, not progression. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. The first step is sin is debated. Sin is debated. Is it really right? Is it really wrong? I mean, is, is that behavior really, really bad? Is that really a sin? We debate sin. By the way, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent slips up to Eve and says, Has God really said that you shouldn't eat from the fruit of that tree? Is it really wrong to do that? Sin is debated. Next step down, sin is tolerated. Sin is tolerated in the sense that you go your way and I'll go my way and you have your truth and I have my truth. All the time ignoring God's truth. Essentially, when sin is tolerated, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. The Bible says that about a few generations, and it's never a compliment. It always leads to the demise of that culture or civilization. Sin is debated. Is it really right? Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. Sin is tolerated. And by the way, when sin is tolerated, when you stand for what is right and true according to God's word, you're called a judgmental, bigoted hypocrite. That's what will happen. But there is a third step. Sin is debated. Sin is tolerated. Sin is celebrated. Sin is celebrated. What the Bible says is good and holy is seen as wicked. What the Bible says is crooked and perverse is seen as virtuous. Now, let me help you to diagnose where we are as a culture. Well, I've got a little simple question for you. And um, don't answer it out loud. What do you think of when you see the symbol of the rainbow? What do you think of 
when you see the symbol of the rainbow. I mean, when your friends have as the background for their social media photograph the rainbow, do you think they are appropriating the promise of God to never flood the earth again? Is that what you think? No, that's not what you think. It's not. Because we are in the middle of Pride Month, a celebration of sin. Now, some of you may not like that, and some of you are going to leave and go, he's just filled with hate. Let me say something to you. I do not hate gay people. I don't. I love them. When I speak against drunkenness, I don't hate people who get drunk. I love them. I want them to repent. I've sat face to face with men who've come into my office in 30 years of being a pastor who've looked me in the eye and said, Pastor, I've blown it. I committed adultery. I didn't hate them, but I called them to repent. And to anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction and who struggles with, with homosexuality, I want to say this to you. I love you, but I call you to repent. Not because that's my preference, because that's what God's Word says. That's what God's Word says. And when we stand for what God's Word says, it won't be popular in the culture. I have driven down a stake for my life and for my family and for as long as I stand on this platform for this church, that we are going to say what God says. And what God says is what matters. And it will make us stand out. You do need to understand, though, that when you stand out, you get a target on you in the culture. You just need to know that. You say, well, Bob, how do we know where to stand? Look at the very next phrase. The very next phrase in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. It is not that we hold fast the traditions of being a Baptist church. It is not that we hold fast what our grandpa believed. It is that we hold fast the word of life because this book is truth. Period. It is the inspired, inerrant word of God. This is his message to us. And when he calls something a sin, it's not because he doesn't like us. It's because he knows it's self-destructive. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the apostle Paul writes, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. These are difficult days in which we live in as believers. And I believe there are two mistakes that we could make. One mistake is that we would side on the side of truth and we would speak truth without love. If we speak truth without love, we lose. But there is another side to this that I think is dangerous. And that is that we love people so much that we don't tell them the truth. And when we say that we love people, but we don't tell them the truth, we're not doing them any favors. There is a third way. 
And it is speaking the truth in love. I have determined that for my life, as for me and my house, and for our church, we're going to speak the truth in love. That's where we need to be. That's where the Bible calls us to be. Now, some of you would like for me to major a little bit more on the truth side, but it needs to be tempered with the love side. Some of you really wish I wasn't even talking about this. You're uncomfortable even this morning. Let's just avoid. Let's just don't talk about it. Let's just don't talk. When we don't talk about it, what we do is we give people a license to believe that their behavior is perfectly acceptable to God when it's not. We are called to speak truth into people's lives. And that's what we need to do. Because when we do that, we contrast the light that is in us with the darkness that Satan has cast over this world. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, you have spoken not through the words of Bob, but through the word that is living and active through your word, the Bible. We have no right to compromise it. We certainly have no right to change it. And so, Lord, help us to stand firm on your truth, but to stand in love. Father, I pray that you will make us a strong and effective witness to the truth of your word. Lord, help us to stand against that which is wrong in your sight, that which is, that which is self-destructive. But Lord, help us to stand for that which calls men and women and boys and girls to repentance and to salvation and forgiveness that is in Jesus. I pray for those who are listening to this message today that today would be a day of salvation and forgiveness, a day of mercy, of truth and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.